Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you ever heard about a complicated medical procedure and wondered about the technology that made it possible? From Offscript Health, welcome to Before We Die, the podcast where you'll meet the medtech innovators who will share the hurdles, successes, and heartbreaking failures in getting their products to patients before we die. I'm Joey Brenneman from Offscript Health. Now, this is not a podcast about death and dying, quite the opposite. It is about the amazing technological advances in the medical industry that could potentially save lives. Today, we are focusing on the heart and the person who made a more simple but elegant device that improved upon an already successful procedure. And that person is our guest today, Dr. Paul Yock, a self-identified gizmologist. Among his many medical innovations, Dr. Yock is perhaps most well-known for his rapid exchange angioplasty, which is the primary system used worldwide to treat blockages in arteries of the heart. Joining me is our resident panel of experts and the Before We Die creators, Sandra Miller, John McMahon, and Craig Allman. Okay, how's everybody doing today? Are we ready to talk about the heart? Absolutely. Good morning. We're very good, Joey. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Is everybody's heart beating today? Yeah. We good? No, it's going to be exciting. It's a great lineup for today. Okay, so Sandy, you've known our guests today, Dr. Paul Yock, for a really long time, right? So you can probably give us some insider information about Paul. Absolutely. So our audience is so lucky today because we're talking with truly one of the world's leading experts in cardiology. And not only is he a cardiology expert, but he's also an inventor. And we're going to hear about some of the truly transformational inventions that Paul has made and brought to patients and also learn sort of what's the standard treatments today for people who have heart attacks. So mm. we'll, we'll let Paul tell us more about that. Okay, sounds good. So here is our conversation with Dr. Paul Yock. Hello, Dr. Yock. Welcome to the show. I know that your schedule is very demanding, so we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. So you have made so many incredible, impactful contributions to the med tech field. It is beyond impressive. And with all that you do and have done, it seems like as I was digging into your history here, it seems like you should be like the patron saint of our podcast or something, or I don't know, like even, at least the mascot <laughs> or the superhero, right? Can uh, I be the devil's advocate <laughs> instead? <laughs> that's a good, that's a good superhero. We need those people around for sure. So we need a cape for you, Paul. <laughs> That's what I was thinking, right? So, yes, because we're putting together this podcast and it just feels so right that you are here to help put all of this into context for our listeners who many don't know about biodesign, medical technology. They may have used devices or 
but they don't know the history or where they come from or what they have to go through. So to have you here to break this down for us is just very, we are very honored. So thank you. I think I should quit while I'm ahead here. Right? <laughs> this is great. All right, and cut. We're done. <laughs> okay. So let's jump in. I think a lot of our audience, either they have somebody in their family or know of someone who may have had a heart attack. And so what your field is, is known as interventional cardiology, which basically means treating some of the blockages in the coronary arteries and in your heart without opening up the chest for like an open heart bypass surgery. Yeah. Paul, can you just sort of help us like get up to speed on the basics of treating these blockages and what sort of the standard treatment of an interventional cardiologist and the way that they treat those blockages? So you're right in saying that, that lots of people will know folks who've had heart attacks. There are a million Americans who have heart attacks a year. Uh, so that translates to like a heart attack every 30 seconds. Talk about an epidemic. There's a little bit of good news, uh, which is the rates have actually been going down since 2000. And that's probably mainly due to less smoking. And the rates have been going down a little more steeply in men than in women. In terms of what causes the disease, it is a buildup of blockage in the coronary arteries. Coronary means heart. So there are arteries that feed blood supply to the heart. And unfortunately, those little arteries, they're, they're kind of about the caliber of a, of a drinking straw. And over the years, lipids in your blood, fat materials in your blood, can get into the walls of the coronary arteries and, and start to build up blockages that that narrows the artery. Sometimes they get very hard, they can get calcified, but the heart attacks themselves are caused by an abrupt blockage of the whole artery. And usually that happens because one of these narrowings basically ruptures, it breaks. And when it breaks, there's an intense blood clot that forms and, and that completely plugs off that branch of the coronary artery. And if that's not treated, that part of the heart will die. And that can lead to sudden death of the whole patient through, through various ways, or it can just make the heart weaker going forward. So just walk us through how you would treat a patient who has a blockage. What, what's sort of the equipment involved? What's sort of the setting well, you mentioned something important, which is a lot of times there'll be a warning before a heart attack happens with a patient having chest pains. The medical word for that is angina. And it reflects the fact that that part of the heart is not getting enough blood supply. The heart's a muscle and it needs oxygen in order to function. And what happens if there's not enough blood supply, that part of the heart starts aching like a muscle aches. And, and the patient experiences that as chest pressure. And it makes sense if you think about it, that happens at exercise when, when you're making the heart work harder. And so it needs more oxygen and it gets starved for the oxygen. And so you get that aching uh, of the heart. That's angina. And by exercise, it could be walking up the stairs. It doesn't have to be at the gym, right? Yeah, thanks, John. Good point. Shoveling some snow, raking leaves. Exactly. Just sort of bringing things up. Exactly yeah. right. 
So that's a clue uh, for a doctor that something needs to be evaluated further. And there are a few ways of doing that evaluation to find out whether it's a serious blockage or not. One of them actually is to simulate that exercise. So to put a patient on a treadmill, but have an EKG or even an ultrasound study going while the patient is is exercising. And you can see on the electrocardiogram or on the ultrasound study that that the heart is not liking uh, this level of exercise. Another way of doing this is to take a CT scan uh, of the heart. And there you can actually directly visualize the blockages. And so what happens if you see something then that you don't like? Okay. So suppose one of those tests is uh, positive and it's positive in a way that makes us worry. Sometimes there are little blockages and, and we don't worry so much about that. But if it's a big blockage and in a location that's critical, then we want to do something about it. Okay. Like what? So then what do you do? Doing something about it can be either surgery or one of these catheter techniques that you alluded to. The catheter techniques are sort of new. They, they came up in the, in the 80s and 90s. Before then, everything was open heart surgery. And you've heard that term yeah. before, right? That's when yeah. a surgeon goes in and literally splits open the, the breastbone and gets at the heart and creates a bypass. That's why it's called a bypass. They have a, a vessel that goes around the blockage that they sew in. But the catheter techniques are uh, actually going into the, the circulation through a, a little puncture that's either in your wrist or down in your femoral artery at the top of your leg and threading a catheter into that blockage and opening up the blockage. These catheters are like really thin spaghetti size. There's either a balloon or nowadays something called a stent. Uh, which is a, a little metal tube, a little tunnel that props open the artery. Once you have these blockages, is that the only way to open them? You can't do anything as a person like exercise more or eat better to open the blockages? When you get to the stage where, where you're having that angina, that heart pain, and it really is a critical blockage, there's not a good medical way that's fast enough. But earlier on, you can absolutely, with uh, medical treatments and diet and exercise, there's good evidence that, that you can, at a minimum, stabilize the blockage so it doesn't grow anymore, at least in some cases, cause it to either get smaller or get less harmful, less likely to rupture. Okay. So prevention. Now I want to go run all of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not a runner. That's right. <laughs> okay. Can you just... Talk about getting the treatment sort of to the blockage. Like, is that easy to do? Is it pretty straight shot? You know, what's the what's the technique involved there? Yeah, it's it's actually interesting technology, and it, it involves a, a few layers. So there is a what's called a guiding catheter, which is basically a tunnel, and and let's assume we're going in through the wrist. It's the size of a of a fat spaghetti, and and you thread that backwards up the arm and into the area of the heart. There's an area at the top of the heart where these little coronary arteries come off. And so you get the tunnel, first of all, uh, into that position. Not hard to do. That uh, Tunnel catheters are shaped in the right way that they kind of find their own good place. So that's the outer layer, the tunnel layer. The next thing that goes in is a guide wire. And this is a 
very fine metal wire that has a highly flexible tip. And the reason you need that is that the coronary arteries are a branching system. They look like tree roots that mm. uh, kind of encircle the heart. And the blockage that you're going to work on could be in any one of, you know, umpteen uh, locations. And you have to navigate down to that location by turning right, turning left oh uh, at, the, at the right branches. And that guide wire does that for you. The, the little flexible tip has a bit of a curve to it, and you kind of twiddle that down into the right branch. And you actually go across the blockage. It's The guide wire is so thin that it scoots across the blockage. All right, so we got the tunnel, we got the guide wire, and then the workhorse comes in. And the workhorse is either a balloon catheter or it's a stent catheter. If, if it's a balloon, it's just what it sounds like. You, you put the deflated balloon across the blockage, you pump it up to high pressure. This is like even higher than your tire pressure because these plaques are hard. And you open up that plaque. That was the first technique that was developed, and sometimes those came back. They kind of either sprung back the, the blockages or they grew back over months. And so the technology we use now much more is called a stent, and that's a little metal lattice that goes in in the collapse form, and it gets implanted into the blockage, and it props it open indefinitely. Yeah, I've I've actually seen stents. To me, when I first learned about stents, I thought about, you know, the ballpoint pen and the little sort of spring inside yeah. the pen. I'm like, that kind of looks like some of those stents those, that yeah. they're using in the heart. <laughs> exactly. It's about the same size, too. Yeah. yeah. And I think about people when they tell me that somebody's had a stent. I'm like, oh, yeah, I just accept that. But I, it doesn't even occur to me to think what that actually is. So it's so fascinating to actually yeah. hear, oh, this is what's happening. What is this like for a patient? Well, so there's a special room that has x-ray equipment in it, and these uh, procedures are done under x-ray movies. It's real-time movies. It's called fluoroscopy. And from the patient's standpoint, you get brought in, uh, put on a table, you're, you're lying down, you're awake. You can have a little bit of sedation just to kind of smooth out the experience, but it's really not painful, and there's, there's not a need to be asleep to have uh, anesthesia. The uh, doctor will numb up the area in your wrist or your femoral area before putting the catheters in. But that really is the main discomfort of the procedure. And, and in general, you don't feel the catheters moving in your heart or in your vessels. Wow. Most patients kind of at the end of the procedure say, you know, that that's it. I'm, I'm done. You know, wow. that, that wasn't anywhere near what I was expecting it to be. Do they go home that day? Do they spend the yeah. night? So, so in most cases, uh, you, you go home the same day. There are, of course, complicated cases. And one of the things I didn't mention, and it's important to mention, is that this actually has become a treatment for heart attacks now. So hmm. if you're in the middle of a heart attack and you recognize it and can get to the hospital, they will actually open up that blockage very quickly. In that case, a patient would stay a little longer just because there probably has been some damage to the heart on the way. I remember the first time I was brought in as an engineer to an actual heart attack. And the patient was awake and was basically joking with uh, Dr. Peter Fitzgerald, uh, who was doing the case, 
I, I didn't anticipate that they'd be awake, just actually joking around. The x-rays are running. You're, look, you're seeing them in the heart. You're looking at their hands. You're moving uh, something a little bigger than a hair. They're twisting it from three feet away and treating the patient. It was just an amazing, amazing setting to see. And the patient uh, in that case, and in many cases, can feel better as soon as it's open. I mean, there can be some relief almost uh, uh, in a very short period yeah, of time. true. That is amazing. Thank you so much for laying that all out for us. So let's take a break here. And then when we come back, we can really get into your inventions and all the things that you are currently working on. Does that sound good? Sounds good. All right, great. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Great. So we're back with Dr. Paul Yock, who's helped us understand sort of how heart attacks, uh, blockages in the heart get diagnosed and treated. And now we're going to shift to talking about some of Dr. Yock's inventions, because Dr. Yock is a globally renowned inventor in the medical device space. He has well over 50 patents and one of the things that's pretty interesting for a cardiologist is that he's gotten some really big awards for engineers and inventors. So they sort of normally can turn their nose up at, you know, these doctors, right? But Dr. Yock's inventions are so impactful that they've been recognized uh, by the National Academy of Engineering's incredibly prestigious uh, Russ Prize, the Gordon Prize for Innovation in Engineering. And in a couple weeks, Dr. Yock will be inducted as a fellow in the National Academy of Inventors, which is the highest award for academic inventors. So we are very honored to have <laughs> such a prestigious guy with us. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> so, Paul, let's talk about just a couple of your inventions. You know, we're, we're talking about things related to the heart and cardiac. And one of your early inventions, what's called rapid exchange angioplasty and stenting. What does that system do? And how did that come about? So we talked about the fact that uh, there, there's a guide wire involved in the procedure and, and a catheter that rides on the guide wire. And one of the things I didn't mention is that in, in a procedure, uh, once the guide wire is in, you typically have to put catheters in and out to you start with a small balloon, open up some space, go to a bigger balloon, then go to a stent. So catheters are moving back and forth. In the early days of angioplasty, when, when I trained, the system that everybody was using was a, a system that required two physicians to operate it. One was controlling the guide wire and one was controlling the, the balloon. And the catheters we were working from the, the femoral artery at that point, the, the catheters were five feet long. The guide wire in the original design had to be 
10 feet long. And, and so the second person running the guide wire was at the patient's feet trying to keep control of the guide wire while the person in the front was moving the balloon. And it was just an awkward system. It, it, and in that scenario, you need a 10-foot bed, yeah. right? I mean, <laughs> well, everything sort of got to be 10 feet. You, you were standing down below the, the feet of the patient. Uh, unless the two doctors communicated precisely what would happen is you'd lose the position in the heart and have to start all over. And, and the, the doctors, you'll be shocked to hear, don't always communicate perfectly, right? <laughs> right. So uh, it's, it's, it's like a couple dancing and one's doing the cha-cha and one's doing the foxtrot and they're not talking to each other about what they're what they're doing anyway. Well, they're both leading instead of one of them following. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So long story short, I was the flunky in these procedures. I was down at the patient's feet because I was in training. And when something went wrong, it was always my fault, of course. And after suffering that for a while, I thought, you know, th this is a crazy system. We have to design something better. A and it occurred to me that the only time that the catheter had to be all over the guide wire riding on top of it was when it was inside the heart. There was eight and a half feet where that didn't have to be the case. <laughs> and if you had that insight, all of a sudden, two things happened. One was if the guide wire is not controlled by the catheter outside of the heart, one person can do the whole procedure. Your left hand and your right hand become the two operators. And so we converted the procedure to a single physician procedure that actually is much easier to do, doesn't require any, any communication. And it's much faster. That's the rapid part of uh, rapid exchange. It means that the catheters can fly in and out fast. Wow which is good in the in the setting of a heart attack. Yeah, absolutely. And when you talked about uh, going wrong, I think about it this way, that a wire, and, and I saw it happen as an engineer in, in some cases, it falls off the table and gets on the floor. I'm sure it never happened to you. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to admit it anyway. <laughs> everyone's sort of looking at each other, you know, like, well, one end is inside this critical patient in tender care and awake, and the other end is on the floor now on the floor. And uh, I found it to be an awkward situation, yeah. shall we say? Yeah. So this just to, for the audience to have a sense of the impact of this invention. It's actually a particularly famous set of patents. So if anybody is a intellectual property geek, you can absolutely geek out by doing some search on, on uh, the Yawk uh, Rapid Exchange patents. But there are, more importantly, in terms of patient impact, the rapid exchange angioplasty system continues a couple decades later to be the most prominently used uh, angioplasty system around the world. And in fact, is used in 3 million patients worldwide still today. Talk about impact. That's pretty big. <laughs> yeah. And I guess I just in that timeline, I guess I kind of want to know from you being the flunky to you being the person who has this new system. Like, what's the timeline of that? Well, so it, it's kind of interesting. Early on, nobody thought it was a good idea. I remember distinctly going to a meeting as, as a young person and all of the key opinion leaders in the, in the field were at this meeting and, and I presented this uh, system and it was quiet. And one of the very distinguished cardiologists in the room raised his hand and I said, yes. And he said, I just have one question for you. 
why in the world would you want to do this? And I licensed it to a, a good angioplasty company, but it took quite a while for it to get up their priority list high enough to put some development effort into it. Uh, so it was a, a good couple years from having a good model and patents and so on to, to it starting to get uptake. One thing, Dr. Yark, is I, I never asked before is, did you do the patent first or did you go into the kitchen and cut up some <laughs> catheters and do, do a prototype? Yeah, prototype first. You know, I, I did some modeling and, and it was a fun memory. I, I brought it in to the, the company that I mentioned and there was a, a, the chief science officer of the, was a very good guy. And I, you know, had written him, told him that I had I thought a different way of doing angioplasty. And he had, John, you, you probably remember these, he had a heart model on his coffee table, right, that you could practice catheters with. Mm -hmm. So I, I set up and, and uh, he, he was kind of half paying attention and showed him that you could do a single person angioplasty with the system. And he like, what was, was startling, he said, how the blank did you do that? Um, and, and and ran off and got their vice president of sales and got got him in and said look, look at this thing and and that was the the start of getting it licensed. As you had the light bulb go off in your head about there's got to be a better way, and you started thinking about how to do that. What made you think you could be an inventor? Yeah, so I was extremely lucky that I was working at the time with one of the great innovators in, in our field, uh, John Simpson, uh, who was a, you know, a pioneer of angioplasty. That was so important because he made me feel like it was possible to do it. Just being in the same environment with this great innovator, he made you feel like you also could be an inventor. That's great. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Let's shift from rapid exchange to intravascular ultrasound. Yeah. And this is another of your very impactful inventions. Can you talk about sort of the light bulb moment for what became intravascular ultrasound? Well, it, it, this also has to do with, with Dr. Simpson. So our procedures were being guided by that x-ray technique that I was mentioning. It's called angiography. And, and what you do is you uh, squirt a little dye that shows up on x-ray into the coronary arteries, and you, and you can see that branching pattern, those roots uh, that, that I talked about. But it's not very precise. It's kind of a fuzzy gram just because the arteries are and so it, And it's like a black and white movie. Yeah. yeah. And that's how we saw the, the blockages. 
but it really wasn't in very good uh, detail. And I just had the instinct that if we could see more clearly, and then that the aha moment came uh, with Dr. Simpson, he, he had done a balloon catheter, but he wasn't satisfied because patients were coming back. And he said, you know what we really need to do is cut the plaque out of the artery. And he invented a cutting catheter that would go in and cut on the side of the artery into the blockage. And, and then his idea was that you would, you would rotate that catheter and cut around the plaque and just clear out the plaque on all sides. And I had just been studying coronary arteries and I realized that those blockages build up on one side and not all the way around the artery. And as he was describing this procedure to me, I said, oh my God, that's going to be trouble because you don't want to cut the normal part of the, the artery wall. And the angiogram doesn't teach us which side the plaque is on. So I said, we need a new way of looking at this. And I had trained in ultrasound and I thought, okay, in principle, ultrasound is a way of seeing through, not just surface, but seeing in, in depth. You don't know how deep the plaque is just by looking at the inner lining. So you got to look through it. So uh, again, wrote a, a patent about the concept of miniaturizing uh, an ultrasound transducer and going inside the artery to look from the inside at where the plaque is. When you say miniaturize, you got trained in an ultrasound that you, you know, filled your hand. Yeah. And now you're going to say, I'm going to make it you know, a thousand times smaller. Yeah, it probably is a thousand times. And that was not trivial because in order to do that, we had to go to really high frequencies that had never been done. And John, as an engineer, you'll appreciate that wire became an antenna, the, the wire going to the transducer and the catheter became an antenna that picked up all the electronic noise in the, in the cath lab, right? The x-ray machine, all of that was broadcasting to the catheter. So it was really uh, hard to make the images. And some AM radio on a Fresno. <laughs> and I think it's it's helpful just for the audience to visualize this. Dr. Yox talked about these, you know, these one millimeter wires, right, that are being taken down. So this ultrasound imaging transducer is literally on the tip of a one millimeter wire. <laughs> and so... You came up with intravascular ultrasound, which is also called IVUS, I-V-U-S. People were using IVUS before stenting was really popular. Can you talk about once stenting started to be used, what was the application of IVUS with respect to, to cardiac stents? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So in, in the early days of stenting, there was a huge issue, which is a high proportion of the stents were clotting off just because there was a foreign body, metal in there, and the, and the blood doesn't like metal. So it looked like it was going to be a serious limitation. There were parts of the stents that, that were necked down in the middle of the bloodstream. No wonder they were clotting. And what that meant was that the stents had to be put in at much higher pressure than anybody realized. Once they did that, voila, the clotting problem went away. And that's now the way stents are put in. And we do still check stents with IVUS when there's something complicated about the case. If it's a really easy short segment, pop a stent in, that's fine. 
if it's longer, if it's at a branch, if it just looks funny, then, then we go in with Ivis and, and tweak it and figure out what to do. So, Paul, let's sort of go to 30,000 feet. In terms of interventional cardiology, in addition to your inventions, stents, there was this period of many other approaches and many other innovations, all based on taking tools, equipment, if you will, down to the coronary arteries to treat those blockages. Where would you say the field is today? I don't think there's another area of medicine where technology has done so well. Having said that, there is a lot still to be done. And and the thing with the coronary arteries that uh, would be critical to solve is we still can't predict when one of these plaques is going to rupture and cause a heart attack. Unfortunately, not all patients give us the luxury of having angina, having chest pain first, and then going on to, to being at risk for a heart attack. A heart attack is the first episode that a patient has in 50% of the cases. They have no warning at all, and the first thing that happens to them is a heart attack. We desperately need a way to understand which patients have these vulnerable plaques, these plaques that are, are going to rupture. And I, I, that has been a very frustrating area, a very difficult area, and that's you know, where I would like to see some progress. There are some promising techniques, but nothing at this point that's completely non-invasive that can tell us this. We mentioned at the beginning open heart surgery, bypass, you know, grafts versus the stenting and, and what we're doing without opening up the chest. Is one approach better than the other? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because bypass surgery still is very important. It, it's done in about 250,000, I think, bypass surgeries still. And the reason you do bypass surgery is either there is diffuse disease, there's disease uh, in, in multiple branches that's better served by this new conduit technique. And now in hospitals, for, for the patients listening, there will be a group of surgeons and cardiologists who together review your angiogram and decide what the best way to to go is. So it's a very collaborative process at this point. The surgical results continue to get uh, better and better. So one of the questions I imagine that people in the audience might have just about, you know, things that are causing cardiac disease, isn't there a pill available for that? Isn't there a drug that's been developed that can make our blockages go away? There are a number of pills and and you can work in in a few different areas. So you can work on the lipids in the blood. And if you probably heard the term hypercholesterolemia, if you have too much fat in your blood, there are pills that will reduce that. Those pills, interestingly, also work on inflammation. Uh, I didn't mention this, but if you have conditions that cause inflammation in general, it turns out that that accelerates the buildup of the fatty plaques in the coronary arteries. You've probably heard even gum disease is, is thought to, dental gum disease is thought to uh, accelerate uh, narrowings in the heart. So one set of pills is the lipid-lowering pills that also have an inflammation component to them. If you have high blood pressure, high blood pressure is another thing that accelerates this narrowing of, of the arteries. 
there's no magic draino here for these plaques, but there is some evidence that if you drive the lipid levels down in blood, that there can be a leaching out of the lipid from the wall back into the bloodstream. You, you can get some of that lipid out. At least that's the hope. It's just so amazing to me, both how much you have discovered, but how much there is still yet to know and how much we still have yet to learn. I mean, and similarly, actually, we still have so much that we want to talk about with you, but we are out of time today. So we're going to do a part two of this conversation. And in that section, we are going to focus on the Stanford Byers Center for Biodesign and your vision as the founder. How does that sound? Sounds good. Thanks, Joey. Well, what an incredible conversation. I feel like I learned so much. And you know, when we talk about heart attacks and stuff, again, something that people talk about a lot, but to really understand it and to understand what is happening is just, we are so lucky to have had Paul here for this conversation. And Craig, I'm wondering, as you were sitting there listening, what what were your thoughts as you listened to Dr. Yock? Uh, two things really struck me. One is he had a, a wonderful description of what actually happens to the heart and, yeah. and how it gets fixed, which is very plain spoken. And, he, and he's got this wonderful bedside manner. He must be a hell of a doctor. Yes. But the other thing that interested me, just kind of on the side of invention, was his kind of origin story of being an inventor. I mean, he's a young guy. He's just learning how to be a cardiologist. And he sees this really elaborate kludge, which is what this procedure was like initially, you know, this 10-foot wire. It was just kind of ridiculous, but advanced for the time. And he's this young guy, and no one knows who he is, and he's just learning to become a cardiologist. And uh, no one told him, hey, make this procedure better. Right. And uh, <laughs> 99 times out of 100, you know, he's just happy to be there and, and get training and start a career. But because he had worked with and was working with John Simpson, who you described in the interview as a pioneer of angioplasty, and Simpson himself was an innovator, Paul felt enabled, mm -hmm. you know, that he could actually come up with ideas. He could contribute. That feeling of, oh, I can do this too, you know, that this isn't a subtle feel that, that my creativity, my problem solving maybe could matter is incredibly liberating. And most institutions are not like that. Right. But he was just, he had that role model right in front of him to creating a whole methodology about it. John, what, what did you think of what Paul said? Well, I think once again, Craig, and I apologize for complimenting you, but you really bought into the kernel of that, you know, because he, he took that lesson and he's carried it forward his, his whole career. So we really walk through interventional cardiology, but we also work and there's uh, cardiac surgeons that are opening the chest and doing these surgeries. What is of note to me in that field is an interventional cardiologist like Dr. Yock wants to do something, he has to build it and develop it. And so all of these innovations need a whole back end of people making these wires, making these catheters which is very different than the cardiac surgeon. The cardiac surgeon is really talking about using their hands and doing a different technique. So the innovations for cardiac procedures have really been driven by the discipline, the group of interventional cardiologists. 
the real big difference in the outcomes of these patients. So if a patient is hearing, as he said, you're going to talk to a surgeon and an interventional cardiologist, that surgery pathway has excellent, longstanding, great results, arguably superior to catheters. But boy, people want to avoid those six weeks where your chest has been opened up and you're wired yeah. back closed. So getting recommended for surgery, the long-term outcomes are excellent as well. And, and it's really great to see it. But innovation definitely led on the interventional cardiology side. Um, one thing to focus on, and, and he glossed over it, but he has this idea. He goes to the company that you know he thinks can help manufacture it. And it took a while. It took a long time to get their attention, to even start working on it, thinking about it, having, you know, a meeting every month about it, what have you. If you imagine the persistence that he had to have to sort of continue to nudge that along to get to that point. Paul was doing this at a time when he was not a big, famous, well-known doctor. He was a trainee, right, who was just starting his career, so he had no he had very little power and yet he has this amazing idea. The interesting thing is that Dr. John Simpson who he trained under, he had the same thing when he had his big idea, that his big angioplasty idea which was called over the wire. He went to the chief of cardiology at Stanford and was basically told, yeah, go back to work treating patients, this, you know, forget this little invention thing. Same thing of that persistence, even when you're told by, quote, experts to just stop wasting your time. They had that sort of fundamental belief at a gut level and persisted through it. You know, I noticed Dr. Yock didn't mention who was uh, shutting him down on his ideas. Why are we that polite? Why don't we want to go ahead and say, <laughs> this person, <laughs> or you named their title so we could probably look it up, but... I mean, they've got to feel like they made a mistake and like, oh, no, that well, turned Well, I know out to be in John Simpson's case, it was Victor Zhao. <laughs> so, and go. he's been very public with that over the year. But Victor's <laughs> gone on to, uh, Dr. Zhao's gone on to a very uh, distinguished career. So he's not uh, suffering from any, any knocks. The other thing, real quickly, that Dr. Yock mentioned is there is still so much that is unknown about how to treat what he called these vulnerable plaques. And those are the things that can cause, you know, these sudden heart attacks. It's called sudden cardiac death. And so there's a lot of patients that have warning signs, the chest pain that gets you to the emergency room, that gets you to the procedure, and then you're, you know, then you're okay, right? They treat the blockage. Mm -hmm. There are some patients who don't have those warning signs because there's this whole other dynamic going on inside those arteries. And so there's still a lot, a lot of these blockages that we're not yet able to anticipate and get to as quickly. And, you know, those patients can die. So one of the things for everybody to keep in mind is if anybody's having any sort of, you know, those warning sign symptoms of chest pain and the like, don't ignore them. Yeah, for <laughs> They're sure. happening for a reason. Yeah. You know, you're better to get it checked out than to just sort of say, oh, it'll go away because they do, you know, you'll get the twinges and then over time they, they grow and grow. So you don't want to do that. Anyway, Joey. Yeah. So, John, to your point about wanting to point out the naysayers, sometimes I think that those naysayers and the people who discourage us to do something are part of the reason why people go out and actually do it. I mean, as we're going to find out in, in part two of this conversation, the type of mind that says, 
there's a problem and I am going to keep working until I figure out a better way or a way to deal with it. Those are the problem solvers that we're going to talk about with Paul Yock in our next episode. So for all of our listeners out there, please join us next time as we talk about the Stanford Buyers Biodesign Center, where these great minds come together and dream up all of these new technologies. That's our show for today. We want to thank our guest, Paul Yock, and also thanks to our Before We Die panel of experts, Sandra Miller, John McMahon, and Craig Allman. We just want to remind everybody that you can listen to our Lab Before Slab mini episodes where Sandy, John, and Craig geek out about other fascinating happenings in the med tech world. And as always, our hope is that some of the cutting edge technology that we talk about on this show will be available to the patients who need them before we die. Thanks for listening. Before We Die is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Before We Die is mixed by Kyle Moore. Our Before We Die panel of experts and creators of the show are Sandra Miller, John McMahon, and Craig Allman. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Share your healthcare stories with us and we might just play them on the air in a future episode. For more information, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.